I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiners. So glad to see you've returned for more Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Our look at those things that inspired Dan Erickson as he was creating Severance continues. This is the third and final part of our massive Origins Odyssey, breaking down the 1998 movie, The Truman Show. If you've somehow happened onto this episode without hearing parts one and two, beware, head-exploding spoilers are coming. Seriously, if you haven't listened to parts one and two, what are you even doing here? You really should give those a listen before wading into this. When we last left our hero, Truman and Merrill were sitting in Truman's car. Truman is freaking. He'd spent the whole day trying to leave the island via both travel agency and bus. Nothing was working. Back home, sitting in his driveway, he realized the people passing behind him were on a loop. Truman is in some very advanced stages of Truman Syndrome. At the end of the last podcast episode, Truman had just hit the electric door locks on the Taras. Truman's ready to go right now. He's looking around wild-eyed as he maniacally mangles old sayings. Early bird gathers no moss. Rolling stone catches the worm, right? <laughs> right? Right? Truman throws the car in reverse. Merrill yelps, and we cut to a low-angle look at the back of the car. Oh my, Truman drives a Taurus LX. That's the luxury trim package. Very fancy. The license plate is right in our faces, lower frame center. It says Sea Haven Island above and a nice place to live across the bottom. Truman's license plate is 816KAZ. I did a lot of Googling looking for some kind of meaning behind this license number. Nobody knows anything about the KAZ, but I do like this explanation for the 816. In the United States, 816 is an area code in Missouri. It happens to cover the city of Independence. Although not his birthplace, Independence, Missouri was the lifelong home of U.S. President Harry S. Truman. Could this be the Truman connection to this plate number? Even if it isn't, I do love this attempt to explain it. Truman roars out of the driveway. What are you doing? He heads off down the quiet, tree-lined brick streets of Seahaven at a breakneck pace. He's also weaving back and forth. Where shall we go? Where shall we go? He races into a roundabout. Merrill shoots a nervous glance to the camera she knows is in the back seat. She then puts on her seatbelt. Truman is moving at some dangerous speeds for such a tiny neighborhood. Somebody help me! I'm being spontaneous! <laughs> Truman shouting out the car window as he continues to race around in circles. There's a down angle shot of the roundabout with Truman's car continuing to go round and round. Forget Fiji! Can't very well drive to Fiji, can we? <laughs> I don't think Truman is really off his Fiji kick. He's just being spontaneous. He shouts, what about Atlantic City? Merrill, always ready with a counter, reminds him he hates to gamble. Why would he want to go to AC if he hates to gamble? Because I never have. That's why people go places, isn't it? 
The wild circling is having an effect on Meryl. She says she's going to throw up. Me too! Tires squall as Truman picks a road out of the roundabout. The speed limit sign says 15 miles an hour. Truman is far exceeding it and recklessly. There's a beautiful bit of obvious choreography happening when Truman turns. The streets in all directions were empty. As soon as Truman picks a route, four cars emerge from side roads and turn right in front of his path. The cross street ahead is also suddenly filled with traffic. The odd choreography did not go unnoticed. Beautifully synchronized, don't you agree? Merrill asks Truman if he's blaming her for the traffic. Should I? Merrill puts a concerned hand on Truman's arm and quietly asks him to go home. Truman surprisingly gives in with no argument. He says they could be stuck in traffic like this for hours. It might be like this all the way to Atlantic City. We are still watching the action from Kristoff's backseat camera. Truman throws the Taurus in reverse as Merrill looks relieved. I'm sorry. I don't know what got into me. This seems all well and good, but wow, is he moving fast in reverse. Can you please slow down? Back in the roundabout, he blows right by their turn. This isn't Truman giving in. It's more of Truman being spontaneous. What's New Orleans like this time of year? He then shouts... Mardi Gras! <laughs> with his head shaking and tongue out. I wouldn't have been shocked if a green mask had appeared on his face right about then. You can take Jim Carrey out of the comedies, but you can't take the comedy out of Jim Carrey. Truman blasts through the roundabout a couple more times, then turns back down the same street where they'd just been blocked by all the traffic. Look, Meryl. Same road. No cars. Meryl tells him she wants out of the car. If he's going to be so destructive, he can do it on his own. I think I'd like a little company. The car races down the same sedate brick to street, now entirely clear of any traffic, and turns onto the cross street. Based on Truman's selection of driving destinations, I think he thinks he's in Florida. Seaside, the real town standing in for Seahaven, is in the Florida panhandle. Atlantic City is about a 15-hour drive up the east coast from Seaside. New Orleans, right about 10 hours, heading almost due west. Burbank, California, where the Truman Studio is actually located, is about as far away as you can get from Atlantic City and still be on the continent. They are nearly 2,800 miles away from each other, so not a real good choice as a driving destination. We cut to the Taurus sitting at the entrance to a long bridge. The sign says you are now leaving Seahaven Island with an exclamation point. There is a line, then under it, it says, are you sure it's a good idea? The mind games never stop. I wanted to know what bridge we were looking at here. As I was searching, I came across an essay describing how the bridges in The Truman Show are metaphors for Truman's quest to expand his world and take control of his life. The unfinished bridge he and Marlon were driving golf balls off represents Truman working on his inner self. We'll see him at that bridge again in just a little bit. According to the essay, once Truman completes work on his inner bridge, he will be able to overcome his fears and break out of his servitude to Kristoff. This bridge, the real bridge leaving the island, is his stand-in symbolizing his weakness and the personal demons which limit his life. If he could break free of these demons by finishing his inner bridge, he would be able to cross this real bridge and find his true soul. His true soul, in the commenter's view, is a real life on the outside. I have no idea if Peter Weir or Andrew Nicole meant 
any of this by including the bridges, but I did enjoy this reviewer's interpretation of the visuals. And no, I never discovered the true identity of this bridge. They are sitting, looking across the bridge. Merrill thinks he's finally hit a wall when it comes to this acting out he's been doing. You know you can't drive over water. So turn your butt around and let's get back to the house so I can do some more product pitches around the kitchen. Meryl's trying so hard. She tells him they need to go home where he'll feel safe. Truman's fears are very real and very debilitating. It's amazing to see what a mind job Kristoff has done on the poor guy over the years. Truman asks for Meryl's hand. She thinks she's getting through. When she offers her hand, he pushes it onto the steering wheel. Drive. Closes his eyes and stomps the accelerator. Truman! I see why Meryl is always on her bike. She's a terrible driver. The car is careening from side to side as they cross the bridge. Meryl is shouting, this is illegal. They aren't going to make it. Then as quickly as it began... We're over the bridge. Truman opens one eye. He's as shocked as anyone. His gamble works. (laughs) Oh, and we've been watching this entire scene on a camera mounted in the air vent of the Taurus's dash. There's not another car anywhere on the road as they race down the highway. We pass a road sign that says Forest Fire Warning. It's one of those temporary lighted signs they pull around on a trailer and set up for roadside emergencies. It clicks from the warning to a second panel that says Extreme Danger. Merrill wants to know what about that sign? Is Truman going to plunge them headlong into a forest fire? You're exaggerating. We'll be fine. We cut to a front view of the oncoming car. A line of flame roars up and crosses the highway right in front of them. It's an obviously controlled and created fire, but it looks pretty imposing as a wall of flame blocking the highway. Truman rolls right on through, not even slowing down. Oh my, Truman, we're on fire! Okay, we're on fire! Smoke clears, and they are once again roaring along the empty highway. No other flame is visible anywhere. Want to do it again? No! <laughs> After the pseudo-emergency has passed, Merrill gets back to tearing down Truman's travel plans. So, what are we going to do for money when we get to New Orleans? Well, Truman has his Sea Haven bank card. Merrill is disgusted hearing he plans to eat into their savings. Merrill says she's going to call Truman's mother when they get there. I don't know how she's going to take this. They drive in silence for about three seconds before we hear a siren going off in the distance. This has to be the most event-filled stretch of highway in the United States. Since the forest fire was a non-starter, we've moved to evacuation event number two. Truman isn't buying into any of these theatrics. What now? He's starting to see things filtered through his bout of Truman syndrome. A loudspeaker follows up the siren. We cut to a sign identifying the Seahaven Nuclear Power Station. Clean, safe, economical, more power to you. I noticed a detail here which now makes me think Kristoff is also wanting Truman to believe he's in Florida. Either that or there was a production boo-boo in this scene. From the windshield point of view shot as they approach the nuclear plant, you can see an interstate sign just behind the police car to the left. It says to Interstate 
10. Interstate 10 is the southernmost coast-to-coast interstate in the U.S. It starts in Jacksonville, Florida, and it passes right through the Florida panhandle. I-10 is the closest interstate access for the residents of the real seaside Florida. Extras in hazmat suits and cop uniforms are running everywhere. There's a haze of smoke off in the distance. Looks like a leak at the plant. An extra playing a cop who is drunk with fictional authority approaches to confirm Merrill's fears. Back up, back up. Leak at the plant. They had to shut her down. There is absolutely no way around. The whole area is being evacuated. This cop is being played by American actor Mark Allen Jalot. I use the term actor loosely. I don't know why, but there are several folks in this movie whose only professional appearance of any kind is in this movie. Remember TV host Logan Kirksey? He and Mark Allen Jalot have almost identical IMDb pages. Mark also has only appeared in The Truman Show. We do get a couple of additional tidbits of info about Mark. He was born in Salinas, California in 1962, and his nickname is Mullet. Hannah, remembering she's playing a nurse, officiously jumps in. Is there anything I can do? No, ma'am. Well, of course, there's nothing for her to do because there is no emergency. For that matter, there is no power plant. It's pretty obvious it would be best if they just turned around and headed back to their idyllic life in Seahaven. Truman thanks the officer for his help. We get a reverse cut to the officer as he gives a halfway salute. You're welcome, Truman. Oh, dang, Mark, what are you doing? You can't know his name. This is an anonymous cop miles from home who just happens to know Truman's name. There is a cut to a close-up of Jim Carrey's face as this recognition comes crashing in on Truman. Jim Carrey is doing a nice job with this dramatic stuff. No wonder Mark Mullet didn't get a role in anything else after blowing this bit part on The Truman Show. He'll never work in this town again. Meryl slowly turns her head in his direction. She knows how badly this gaffe is going to land with Mr. On the Edge Burbank. Truman grabs the door handle and jumps out of the Taurus. Truman! Truman leaps over the hood of at least one of the police cars and heads off lurching down the highway. Cops and guys in hazmat suits are chasing him. A few try to cut him off as he zigs and heads into the woods. There are more hazmat-suited guys in the woods. Truman goes down and they collapse on him. We can hear snippets of radio traffic reporting he is in custody. We cut to a now very relaxed and demure Merrill standing at the front door of the Burbank home. Thank you both so much for your help. I really appreciate it. Reverse cut to a couple of Seahaven's finest. He's lucky to be alive, man. These cops are being played by Jay Sater and Tony Todd. Since neither provided a pick on their IMDb profile, I don't know which is which. I do know that Jay is another one of those Truman-only performers. It's his only credit. Tony Todd has four total acting and three stunt credits, but his resume stretches over nearly 20 years. Some trivia about Tony, he is a lifelong friend of Charlie Sheen's. Next time we're at the file charges. The non-talking cop on the left is fascinated with Truman. He keeps looking off frame right, trying to get a glimpse of the star of the show. Thanks again. Good night. night. Both cops grab a final look at Truman before the door closes. Something to tell their kids and grandkids, I'm sure. Meryl slowly turns after closing the door. She has a stern and disappointed look on her face. Truman is seated at the kitchen table. His posture is one of defeat. His shoulders are slumped, hands folded in his lap. Let me get you some help, Truman. 
Yeah, you might be suffering from that Truman syndrome thing I've heard so much about. You're not well. Check the necklace Meryl is wearing in this scene. We will see this necklace highlighted later in a story about the show. The pendant contains a tiny camera. All the fire is gone from Truman. He looks tired and defeated. Why do you want to have a baby with me? There's a reverse cut to Meryl who doesn't have an answer. You can't stand me. Meryl claims it's not true, but then she turns away. No matter how great the actress, it's almost impossible to believably fake romantic love. When Meryl turns away from Truman, she notices something on the counter. This is Meryl panicking in an attempt to change the subject. She is most at home with her pitches and product promotions, so she decides to go into one now. Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? Her eyes are wide and glistening to the point of looking manic. She grabs the can of Mococo like she's starring in a 30-second spot for this stuff, which she kind of is. All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. Truman's head snaps up and he looks around the room. What the hell is she talking about? What the hell are you talking about? Exactly. That was so weird. Who are you talking to? Meryl is hiding from Truman by slipping into pitchbot mode. She feels safe here with a product in her hand and a memorized script on her lips. Even she knows it sounds strange, but in her panic, she can't stop. I've tasted other Cocos. This is the best. The terrified look in her eyes, the brittle smile. She is freaked out of her mind. She's grasping at a lifeline by continuing to spout memorized phrases about this stupid cocoa powder. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Truman is crossing the room towards Merrill. He raises his voice. Tell me what's happening. Meryl is backing up against the counter. As Truman advances, we're seeing a shot from a button cam on his shirt. Meryl says he's having a nervous breakdown, which, if you didn't know anything else about him, you'd say was true. You're part of this, aren't you? Meryl feels truly threatened. The chef's pal folks then get a promotion they were not counting on. Meryl grabs up all three of the chef's pal blades from the counter behind her. She splays them out like they're a deck of cards and points them towards Truman. You are scaring me! Truman counters, saying no, Meryl is scaring him. She is the one with a weapon. What are you going to do? Dice me? Slice me or peel me? Truman grabs Meryl by the wrist and pulls her towards him. He puts his right arm around her neck and easily disarms her with his left hand. Meryl then breaks the fourth wall. This has gone too far. She is so frightened she calls out to the production team. Do something! After a long moment, Truman realizes what she's just done. What? Meryl is looking right into the ceiling-mounted kitchen camera. What you say? Who are you talking to? Nothing. I didn't say anything. A tip here, little leaguers. If you think a friend or loved one is suffering from the Truman Syndrome, do not talk to unseen production people, even as a joke. It's not going to go over very well. Meryl is denying she was talking to anyone as she runs through the front room. She's headed out the front door, but Truman grabs her. He still wants to know who she was talking to back there in the kitchen. No, I didn't talk. I wasn't talking to anybody. No. Meryl is in tears when there's a banging on the front door. Talk to me! Don't know anything. Please stop. 
Truman backs away from the door. He still has the chef's pal blades in his hand and his arm around Merrill. The door opens tentatively. Truman? Just like on the beach with Lauren, they can't send in jackbooted thugs, so they send Marlin. His timing is amazing. The first thing we see is a sixer of pen pebbles coming around the edge of the open door. It's followed by a concerned-looking Marlin. He is shocked when he's able to take in the whole scene. Truman. <laughs> Hannah, panicked, breaks away from Truman and throws her arms around Marlin's neck. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Truman drops the chef's pal blades and puts his head in his hands. Hannah has dropped her character entirely. Meryl is gone, and Hannah is all upset actress as she clings to Marlon. How can anyone expect me to carry on under these conditions? It's unprofessional! Marlon is rubbing her back and comforting her. Everything's going to be okay. It's all going to be fine. Marlon must have done some fast talking because we cut to a long shot of the bridge. We are once again on Truman's unfinished bridge. He and Marlon are sitting on the edge with their feet hanging off. Before we go to the close-up and get into this conversation, I want to pause to mention a deleted scene. It probably would have gone right around here. It's only two minutes, but this thing is so well-known, it is regularly quoted in reviews and trivia about the movie. It's referenced so often, it might as well still be in here. You can find it easily on YouTube. I wanted to go over it because I felt like if I didn't mention it, you'd be missing out on a big chunk of a very well-known Truman mythos. This shot-but-never-used scene starts in the Lunar Studio. Kristoff has a tablet on his lap, and he's basically conducting a cast Zoom meeting. Several members of the cast are seated around a table in a backstage area. There are signs on the walls warning against taking cell phones, scripts, or ID cards onto the set. The camera pans down the row of cast members as Kristoff thanks them for their attention. From the left, we see Holland Taylor as Truman's mother. Next to her is Laura Linney as Hannah Gill playing Merrill. She's wearing a neck brace. This is because of Truman's grab around her neck in the kitchen. Next to Hannah is Noah Emmerich as Lewis Coltrane, still wearing the Marlin shirt from when he entered the house. Next to Lewis is the very pretty Heidi Schantz. Heidi is playing the character of Claudia, who is playing Vivian in the TV show. She is credited in the movie as Vivian, and we do see her later on, even without this scene. We are never introduced to her as Claudia in the actual movie. We will see Lawrence introduce Vivian to Truman in the office tomorrow because they are going to be desk neighbors. Next to Heidi is Peter Krause, who plays Truman's boss, Lawrence. First of all, I would like to welcome Walter back onto the show. The camera pans past Peter Krause to reveal Walter. He's the guy who plays Kirk, Truman's father. His in-show name was inspired by Kirk Douglas. You may have done us more of a favor than you ever imagined. Walter is chowing down on a yogurt cup from Kraft Services. I'm wondering how close Walter was to being an actual homeless guy before he snuck back onto the set. We find out he did sneak on, but now that Truman has seen him, Kristoff has come up with a plot line to use him. Kristoff tells the cast Hannah has decided not to renew her contract as Merrill. I'm sure we can all respect her reasons. Well, yeah, getting attacked by a fellow cast member, then breaking character in a total freakout is kind of hard to come back from. There's a reaction shot here. Claudia slash Vivian takes a drink to hide a smug little smile as Kristoff talks about Hannah's exit. However, on a more optimistic note, 
I am pleased to announce that television's first on-air conception will still take place. If Kristoff has his way, Claudia slash Vivian is going to be the new Mrs. Burbank and the mother of Truman's baby. It's like Kristoff is finding a woman to marry the king and bear his child. Peter Krause's Lawrence is a sleaze. He starts applauding at the mention of the on-air conception. Yes! He's the only one. Kristoff mentions we witnessed the initial contact this morning. If this scene had been used in order for us to have seen the initial contact, they would have had to have moved up the introduction of Vivian scene by one day. Kristoff mentions Claudia's work on the stage. Holland Taylor, as Alanis Montclair, leans over to suck up to the new cast member. She tells her how much she loved her Ophelia. Loved it. Thank you. Larry, the guy in glasses who is usually tailing Truman badly on the set, is ordered to hand out new script books. This is a copy of Claudia's backstory. Her character's name is Vivian. Kristoff says the plan is to entice Truman into the affair as soon as possible. Claudia will make a pass at the insurance seminar Truman's attending. Details are in your schedules. We'll hear mention of this seminar later, but Truman never gets to it in the final cut of the movie. Kristoff pauses, looking pained. I don't have to tell you how critical these next few weeks will be. This storyline is going to take the show into the next generation. Kristoff says when the child is born, the network is going to a two-channel format. Same 24-7 Truman coverage on the main channel, plus 24-7 baby coverage on the new channel. Claudia, the woman who is supposed to be having this baby, has a logistics question. What happens when Truman and the baby are both on camera together? Very simple, my dear. There will simply be duplicate coverage. Lewis slash Marlon looks a little pained about this new person moving in on Truman's life. Let's just hope we don't have twins. Peter Krause's Lawrence laughs at this way too loudly. Kristoff is not amused. Lewis slash Marlin has a very long-range question. So when Truman dies, we go back to the single-channel format, right? Kristoff ignores this one completely. Of course not, you non-network suit. Once you've got two channels, why would you ever go back to one? That will be all. Thank you. So that's the deleted scene. Claudia slash Vivian is the new network prostitute ready to sleep with Truman until conception, and Papa Kirk is coming back, so get ready for that. It's one of the soapiest reveals you're ever likely to experience. Let's get back to Truman and Marlon on the edge of the unfinished bridge. Truman says he might be losing his mind. It feels like the whole world revolves around me somehow. This is pretty perceptive and at the same time sounds completely crazy. Marlon says it's a lot of world for one man. Sure that's not wishful thinking? Marlon's doing a little psychoanalysis. He wonders if maybe Truman isn't compensating for not achieving the life he'd imagined for himself. He's not rich or famous, well, at least not in Seahaven. Come on, Truman, who hasn't sat in the john, had an imaginary interview on Seahaven tonight? So this mention of a nighttime talk show produced on the Seahaven TV station raises all kinds of questions for me. Who are these people being interviewed on Seahaven tonight? Are they real celebrities from the outside? I don't think they could be. Modern movies and TV don't support the idyllic world of Seahaven. So if they aren't interviewing real celebrities promoting real movies and TV shows, are these interviewees all residents of Seahaven? Are they the stars of movies like Show Me the Way to Go Home, or are they real people from around town? Who hasn't wanted to be somebody? I think the definition of somebody in Seahaven is a bit different than what it might be in the rest of the country. Truman understands what Marlon is saying, but he says this is different. Everybody seems to be in on it. 
Marlon then launches into an epic monologue. He reminds Truman they've been friends since they were seven years old. Throughout school, they copied off each other's papers. Marlon claims it's the only way he made it through. He said he always felt safe knowing they were in it together. Because whatever the answer was, we were right together and we were wrong together. Marlon reminisces. He reminds Truman of the time they stayed up all night in his tent because Truman wanted to play North Pole. Marlon says he got pneumonia. You remember that? <laughs> you were at school for about a month. <laughs> they both have a big laugh about this memory. I would bet this was actually another one of Marlon's scheduled vacations from the set. You're the closest thing I ever had to a brother, Truman. Wow, this is getting heavy. Marlon is really laying it on thick. He says he knows things haven't turned out the way they both expected, the way they used to dream it would. He pauses. There's a catch in his throat, and we cut. We are hearing a continuation of the same speech Marlon was giving, only now those words are coming out of Kristoff's mouth. But, well, the point is, I'd gladly walk in front of traffic for a moment later, Marlon repeats this line, slightly paraphrased. Point is, I would gladly step in front of traffic for you, Truman. Kristoff is talking into a handheld communicator. Marlon is listening to him on tech that wouldn't be available for about a dozen years or so. There was no such thing as a hidden in-ear communicator in 1997. These days, you could do this easily with a set of in-ear hearing aids that are Bluetooth-enabled. There's a pan along the group in the control room who are assisting Kristoff. Yes, that is Paul Giamatti with the headset and goatee. Mr. G is the Iron Man of these Origins episodes. We first saw him assisting Ben Affleck in Paycheck. Paul will also appear in Jim Carrey's next movie, 1999's Man on the Moon. Not sure if it was a connection made on this movie or just the fact Paul Giamatti was working everywhere about this time. Since Giamatti never directly interacts with Jim Carrey, and since we know these Kristoff scenes were shot after Carrey had already completed his shooting, I'm betting his Man on the Moon role was due to Giamatti barnstorming auditions all over the place in the late 90s. The woman with the jet black hair to the far left of the group is Chloe. She's being played by Korean-American actress, writer, and director Una Damon. Una was born in August of 1964. Her career got underway in 1993 on an episode of Doogie Howser, M.D. Since then, Una has tallied 33 actor credits on her IMDb profile. Her most recent was a single episode shot in 2007 on the TV series Side Order of Life. And the last thing I'd ever do is lie to you. Marlon doesn't hesitate. He repeats this egregious lie exactly as instructed. And the last thing that I would ever do is lie to you. Well, okay, so there was a bit of a pause at the end there, but he still said it. You have to wonder how Lewis could be so cold as to look Truman squarely in the eyes and lie to him so completely. Lewis, as Marlon, has been flat-out lying to poor Truman since they were seven. Lewis has always known what's going on, and he's always been fine with pulling the wool over Truman's eyes. Another thing about 30 rewrites, you've usually got a lot of extra stuff in a heavily rewritten script. Scenes get written, they get axed, like we saw with the cast meeting. Some scenes even get shot, then they are cut for time, or because they're redundant, or maybe they don't support some other change in the narrative. I haven't seen them, but I have read multiple times there are deleted scenes which show Marlon giving Truman a break during his escape. He just lets him go. 
Lewis must have some pangs of guilt about lying to this poor guy. I'm also thinking they may have developed an actual friend bond here, even if it is built on lies. I do think if Marlon were to tell Truman his real name, their friend connection would be destroyed. Marlon continues overselling Truman. He says to think about it. If everybody is in on it, I'd have to be in on it too. Wow, he's good. Marlon takes a sip of Pen Pavels. I'm not in on it, Truman, because there is no it. Great line. It's Kristoff's line, but still a great line. Marlon says Truman was right about one thing, though. The thing that started all this. Uh, what? The light falling from the sky? The, the radio messing up? Oh, no. He means what soap opera-type thing started all this. Marlon turns to look over his shoulder. Truman follows his gaze and stands. Marlon is standing behind him. Without any explanation, he says, Yep, I found him for you, Truman. Walter, I mean... Kirk is standing on the bridge wearing the same outfit Truman saw him wearing on the street the other day. There's a mist hanging behind him with some soft blue lights coming through it. Kirk keeps approaching. Marlon says this is why he came by tonight, to tell Truman about this discovery. Sure, he's got quite a story to tell. Marlon puts a hand on Truman's shoulder. Go to him. We never get a cover story as to how Marlon found Kirk. Truman doesn't care. He's just glad to have Dad back. Truman looks scared, maybe? Confused for certain, and a bit concerned. We cut back to Kirk continuing his approach. Weirdly, he seems to be going deeper into the mist. Easy on the fog. We hear the click of a computer keyboard. Wow, they control everything in this place, don't they? Christoph calls for a crane cam shot. This is a legitimate shot to call for, but a crane cam moves when you get a shot like this. No matter where he's hiding the camera, isn't it a bit obvious when it starts moving? Christoph knows way more about this stuff than I do, so I'm going to defer to him. The music is swelling. Christoph is acting as director, calling for shots. Button cam three. There's a cut to the two waitresses at the Truman Bar. They are hugging themselves and each other during this tense and emotional reunion. We then cut to a shot coming through a circle. This must be what a button cam looks like. I never stop believing. Wow, Christoph couldn't have written this one any better. There's a cut to two elderly white-haired women sitting on a couch. More of Truman's fans and watchers. They clasp each other's hands at this line. Check the swag these two have surrounded themselves with. The robe the woman on the right is wearing is from the Merrill collection. It's the same one she was wearing the other night in the nursery. Some of the framed pictures in the background can also be found in the Burbank household. The yellow and orange latte-style coffee cups with saucers are right off of Truman's breakfast table. The pillow the woman on the left is hugging contains Truman's face. The pillow with the polka dots on it is the same pattern as Truman's sofa. Over to the far right of the shot, it looks like somebody is doing a Merrill Needlepoint project. Everything you see in Truman's world is for sale, and these ladies have taken full advantage. Kristoff calls for a shot from the curb cam. We cut to a side view with an up angle of Truman and his father. My son. Oh. There's a big hug. Be watching. It's shortly after the hug that Truman hands his ring back over to Dad. Giamatti wonders if he should move in for a close-up. Christoph waves him off. He wants a slow pull back. Fade up music. We cut to a guy at a keyboard who is live composing to the scene as it is unfolding. And now, 
If you think about all the scenes of the show, which we've seen underscored by music, this is an amazing feat. When Truman followed Merrill to the hospital, that bit of music under him was played on the fly. It's not impossible. I've met some very talented musicians in my day, some who could vamp on a keyboard for hours without ever playing an actual song, but still, creating a soundtrack live is an amazing feat. You may have read in a trivia item, which I found several places on the internet, that this guy at the keyboard is composer Burkhard Dahlwitz. It's not. The real Dahlwitz is a German-Australian composer based in Melbourne. Along with Philip Glass, Dahlwitz created the score to the entire movie. Later, Philip Glass is going to be seen playing this same keyboard, but this is not Burkhard Dahlwitz. Maybe at one time, having Dahlwitz playing was the plan, and this guy does look a little like him, but this is actually actor John Pramick. He's another one of these almost actors who tend to show up in this movie. Pramick has one other credit, also as a piano player, on the HBO series Arliss. This fake Dalwitz is fake playing along with something the real Dalwitz did write and pre-record for this scene. And now going close. Ed Harris is giving Kristoff the intensity of a director who believes he's creating art, not just TV. Years wasted. I'll make it up to you, I swear. Kristoff is directing his crew as though he is a maestro, directing an orchestra. This is moving stuff in a soap opera kind of way. The camera has been closing slowly. Truman's face, in tears, fills the screen. Dad. Kristoff is so overcome with emotion he can't speak. Yes! It's an amazing moment. They're applauding in the Lunar Studio. The ladies are in tears at the Truman Bar. We cut to a new family watching the show, a Japanese family. Dad looks like he's wearing a Truman-inspired sweater. Mom is wearing a sweatshirt with Truman photos on it and some writing in Japanese. We will be seeing these folks again shortly. The ladies in their Truman-appointed living room are so overcome, they hug each other. Kristoff is hugging Simeon, Paul Giamatti's character. Chloe is still applauding. One of the techs is calling for champagne. Kristoff wearily leaves the control room. He appears to be wrung out from the emotion. He passes two guards wearing black t-shirts that say, Love him, protect him in gold. As he passes through a metal detector at the studio door, Kristoff is grabbed by Moses, one of the network suits assigned to the Truman Show. The other man with him is Roman. Roman is wearing a very hip shirt with angled black and white stripes. Moses comes into the control room through the same metal detector door. He and Roman are not wanted by the security people. Well done, everyone. Congratulations. Moses is being played by legendary character actor Philip Baker Hall. Mr. Hall's amazing career really got going in 1974 when he was 30 years old. Hall was on both TV series and in TV movies throughout the 70s and much of the 80s. Philip has logged an incredible 184 appearances as an actor on his IMDb profile. Many of those gigs included multiple episodes of TV. He is adept at playing network suits. He would go on to play the same kind of role in the 2003 Jim Carrey movie, Bruce Almighty. He also played a network exec in The Insider and Magnolia from 1999. For me, Philip's resume includes one of the most hilarious single-episode characters to ever appear on U.S. television. 
Philip Baker Hall played Lieutenant Bookman from the New York Public Library in the third season of Seinfeld. Maybe we can live without libraries, people like you and me, maybe. Sure, we're too old to change the world. What about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees? Philip passed away in 2022 at the age of 90. Moses' partner representing the network is Roman. He's being played by John Plachette. John is an American actor originally from New York. He has 93 credits on his IMDb profile. Most recently, he had an appearance in a short in 2023. John got his start on The Patty Duke Show in 1964 at the age of 22. He's done a lot of TV in his career, including a regular slot on 77 episodes of Knott's Landing in the 80s. If the name rings a bell, it might be because John is the cousin of Suzanne Plachette. We cut away from the celebration to a sad-looking Lauren, or I mean Sylvia. She is sitting on the floor of her apartment in front of a sofa with papers scattered all over the coffee table. She looks defeated as she glances back at the screen. The network is broken to what looks like a commercial. It's a spy shot of Truman at the breakfast table with his giant yellow mug. The crawl under him says Truman drinks Mo Coco, made from the world's finest coffee beans grown on the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua. I'm no geography whiz, but Mount Nicaragua didn't sound right to me. Turns out good old Mount Nicaragua is as fictional as Mococo. There is a stratovolcano in Nicaragua called Momotombo. It stands 4,255 feet high, so kind of a mount. Although the mount is fictional, it is true, Nicaragua produces a lot of cocoa. They are the largest producer of cocoa beans in Latin America since 2012 when they harvested 5,800 metric tons. Nicaragua's other huge cash crop is tobacco. If they ever start brewing beer, Nicaragua will pretty much have all of our legal vices covered here in the U.S., the camera does a slow push in on Sylvia's face as we hear the announcer from her TV. 1.7 billion were there for his birth. This is an open, or at least a promo package, created by the network. We see a Life magazine cover with Truman's black and white baby picture on it. The headline says, Baby Truman Captivates the World. 220 countries tuned in for his first step. This is an impossible statement. It's either an exaggeration on the part of the network, or it indicates the real world around Truman is in an alternate reality. There were only 165 total countries in the world in 1967. By 1998, the number of recognized countries in the world had risen to 194. That's still a good 25 short of that claimed 220 number. Rather than an alternate reality, I would chalk this one up to writers never do the research. The world stood still for that stolen kiss. Hey, there's a night vision shot of Sylvia smooching old Truman on the beach. Yeah, I didn't think Kristoff would be too upset about her infiltration of the show. She has to be cringing that he's using her to promote it. The announcer says as he grew, so did the technology. We get a montage of newspapers in various languages, close-up shots on various jewelry cams, including Merrill's pendant. And broadcast live and unedited 24 hours a day, seven days a week to an audience around the globe. We get a shot of Truman and Merrill's wedding kiss happening on the Jumbotron in Times Square. Coming to you now from Sea Haven Island, 
enclosed in the largest studio ever constructed. There's a very quick zoom out that happens here. It indicates a worker closing a door located somewhere up high in the sky of Truman's studio. If you slow it down, it's not a great 3D rendering, but this was 1997. The guy who closed the door was a real guy, but not credited. He has since gone into the Truman Show IMDb listing and added his name. This is Michael J. McAllister. Michael isn't an actor. He's actually a visual effects artist. He has 35 visual effects credits on his IMDb profile. This is one of only two actor credits for Michael, and the other was for a college project, so it doesn't even really count. His only professional acting credit is as this guy closing the door on the dome. Effects houses work on footage after it's already been shot. They don't normally hire or shoot actors. I'm sure the effects house figured they needed a real guy to be in this shot as they were creating this dome effect, but they didn't want to bother Peter Weir for footage. Michael was handy around the offices and he agreed to do it. He may have then gone on to do the animation too. The dome itself looks pretty cool. It's located on Mount Lee, a peak in the Santa Monica Mountains. You've seen pictures of Mount Lee, but probably didn't know it. The famous Hollywood sign is located on the southern slope of Mount Lee. The hype man continues, but he is spewing some inaccuracies. And along with the Great Wall of China, one of only two man-made structures visible from space. This statement about the Great Wall of China is entirely false, but it has persisted as a misconception going back to a time before humans could even fly. The Great Wall is enormous to people on the ground. From the air, not so much. Looking down, it's long, sure, but it's only about the width of a big highway. What you can see also depends on where you are. Space is considered to begin at 62 miles out. Space shuttles would orbit the Earth at about 130 miles. The International Space Station is in an elliptical orbit that varies from about 180 miles, going all the way up to 240 miles above the Earth's surface. According to astronaut Gene Cernan, the 11th person to ever walk on the moon, you can see the Great Wall from low Earth orbit, but it's not easy. He said it's only visible if conditions are extremely favorable. The Great Wall is far from the only man-made object visible from space. Other structures like the Spanish greenhouses of Almeria, the cooling pond at Chernobyl, and the Kennecott Open Pit Copper Mine in Utah are also man-made locations which are much more visible. The Kennecott Copper Mine is the largest human-made excavation in the world, and it's really easy to see from the International Space Station. Nobody ever mentions these other locations because they just aren't as famous or as cool as the Great Wall. Now, in its 30th great year, it's the Truman Show! Truman has his own all-lowercase logo with a globe positioned above the U and the M in Truman. We get a Zoom transition to a guy seated in a studio. It's Harry Shearer. Fans of The Simpsons, Spinal Tap, or Saturday Night Live probably started doing Shearer lines when he appeared. This guy is a legend. He's voiced 21 different characters, the most of any performer on 758 Simpsons episodes and counting. He appeared on 38 SNL episodes, and he had a key role in the most mocking of mockumentaries ever made. He was bassist Derek 
Rick Smalls in This is Spinal Tap. Give that man a cucumber. Harry's got 182 performance credits on his IMDb profile, which is hardly indicative of the impact he's had on pop culture and society. Crazy bit of Harry trivia. His first ever listing on IMDb is as a nine-year-old for an appearance in the 1953 movie Abbott and Costello Go to Mars. He played the uncredited character Boy. Here, Shearer is playing Mike Michelson. He's the host of True Talk, the Truman After Show, talking all things Truman. Chris Hardwick, who launched Talking Dead in October of 2011, is credited with creating and hosting the very first ever post-show discussion show. It launched at the start of the second season of The Walking Dead. I'm sorry, Chris, I do love Talking Dead, but I think Mike Michelson might have beat you when it comes to the first post-show discussion show. What a week it's been. I don't know about you, I was on pins and needles the entire time. As Mike introduces the show, we get more cuts to viewers. There is, of course, a long shot of the Truman Bar filled with patrons. Our two favorite waitresses are still on duty. We then cut to a guy watching the show from his bathtub. This seems weird to me, but it also seemed weird to me when we came across the Jill Layton character in Brazil also watching TV in the bathtub. Do people really do this? Were they back in the 80s and 90s? It seems like a gross, tepid, and potentially pruny situation. The guy here watching Truman is all set up with a tray holding his remote and a waterproof bath pillow. He's settling in for the long haul. The bathtub guy is being played by Terry Camieri. I was ready to find out this is another one-shot performer. He's sitting in a bathtub with no lines. I was surprised to find that Terry is a legit actor with 71 IMDb credits. He's been on TV going all the way back to 1971. My favorite thing Terry has ever done, he played the historical and hysterical Napoleon in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Behold, he ate the pig. Thus proving that he's they Ziggy Piggy, Ziggy Piggy, Ziggy Piggy. We then cut to a mother, daughter, and a baby watching from the kitchen table. This is a quick shot, but there's a ton of stuff in this frame. The little girl is playing with a Merrill doll. The mom is wearing a buffalo check print, also just like Merrill. The tablecloth is a Truman design with the tight dot pattern and daisies. There's a Truman photo collage on the door behind the girl. Even the crayon drawings posted in the corner are Truman scenes and Truman characters. The mom in this scene is being played by American actress Susan Angelo. Susan has appeared in more than 100 Shakespeare, classical, and contemporary plays. She has 81 IMDb credits for movie and TV appearances. Remember Jake Eberly, who's playing classical Clive, the radio host? Susan has a similar career path recently. She's provided the English language voice for movie and television show dubs for about five years now. Prior to that, she was mostly landing single-episode guest star roles on TV series. Her daughter is being played by Carly Smiga. This is Carly's only credit of any kind on IMDb. I do wonder if she got to keep the Merrill doll after filming. Oh, wow. Mike says he's got an interview lined up with Kristoff. This should be good. Come with us now as we go live to the Lunar Room on the 221st floor of the Omnicam Ecosphere. That's where we'll find the world's greatest televisionary, the designer and architect of the world within a world that is Sea Haven Island, Crystal. Wow, the hype machine is well-oiled when it comes to the Truman Universe. 
We cut to Kristoff looking out over his creation. Kristoff knows how to make an entrance. He turns and walks into the heart of the lunar room as Mike thanks him for taking the time. He knows just how busy Kristoff's schedule is. We all know how jealously you guard your privacy. This, sir, is indeed an honor. Wow, quite the double standard. Kristoff's whole job involves peeking into the most private moments of Truman's life. Too bad he can't extend Truman the same level of privacy he enjoys. But that wouldn't make for much of a show, now would it? This interview is a major exposition bomb. Up to this point, we've had to figure most things out along with Truman. We have a bit more of an idea than he does about what's going on, but it's not like we've been fans for years. Mike is on the big screen in the Lunar Room. He says the catalyst for the big dramatic events this week was Kirk and his attempts to infiltrate the show. Mike also needs to fill some time, so he calls up a few flashbacks. I think it's worth noting that this is not the first time that someone from the outside has attempted to reach Truman. Kristoff admits there have been close calls in the past. We cut to flashback footage from a Christmas morning before Kirk's death. Mom and Dad are watching young Truman open his hall of presents. There are stockings on the mantle, lights around the bookcase, even some Santa figurines. A quick aside, it's like December 14th right now. This clip is proof they do celebrate Christmas around here. I wonder why we aren't seeing Christmas decorations in the present. Also, check Holland's hair in this shot. It is Perfect. I'm betting Elanis Montclair stopped by hair and makeup before waking Truman to open his gifts. It would probably be a highly rated morning for the show, so you've got to look good. As we're watching this Norman Rockwell painting come to life, the lid pops off a big red box in front of the tree. A guy pops out yelling, It's television! Kirk tackles the guy who's dressed in street clothes and a Santa hat. He acts like he might even be a little drunk. Mom hustles young Truman out of harm's way. Yes! Yes! I did it! On the Truman Show! He falls over the couch, his face planted right in the direction of the camera. This guy is a trivia question all on his own. He gets a proper cast credit as Man in Christmas Box, but he is not an actor. This is Marco Rubio. Not to be confused with the senator from Florida, this Rubio is spelled R-U-B-E-O. Marco is the assistant art director on The Truman Show. It's not like he was a wannabe actor either. If you check his IMDb profile, it's all art. He has 49 credits working in the art department and four as an art director. Marco's actor credits total one. This appearance on The Truman Show. It had to have been just too much fun to turn down. Yes! I did it! We cut from Christmas morning to a shot of Truman in front of Earl's newsstand. In the background, you see a guy parachuting onto Main Street. He's wearing a bib across his front that says, Truman, you are on TV. Even with these very obvious attempts to infiltrate the show, Mike says there's never been anything like this Kirk situation. The first intruder to be a former cast member. Kristoff points out he's a dead one at that. Gotta say, writing Kirk back in, masterstroke. Can you tell who Mike works for? I'd say the guy who hosts the True Talk show is also on Kristoff's payroll. Kristoff says it was Kirk who started this crisis in Truman's life. 
I think he's putting more on Kirk than he deserves. Truman was already pretty unsettled. Having Dad show up sure didn't calm anything down, but I wouldn't blame that one event for his current state of mind. Christoph feels differently. I came to the conclusion that he was the only one who could end it. Oh, and I should mention the guy playing Kirk slash Walter is American actor Brian DeLate from Trenton, New Jersey. Brian is a Vietnam veteran and a veteran of the New York stage. He came to TV and movies later in life. His first IMDb credit is from 1986 when Brian was 37 years old. Brian has racked up a total of 47 IMDb performer credits since then. His most recent entry was in 2021. One of the trivia items in Brian's bio says he originally had a much larger role on The Truman Show, but it was cut down tremendously. Although we don't hear it in the movie, in his Wikipedia entry, we do get a full name. This is actor Walter Moore playing the character of Kirk Burbank. We cut to a flashback of Kirk with quite a bit more hair. Truman! Truman! No! Reverse cut to a four-year-old Truman climbing a huge pile of rocks. He's crossed through a fence topped with concertina wire to get there. A jackhammer and other construction noises can be heard on the other side of the pile of rocks. Truman wants to see what's going on. That's off limits! Kirk says it's dangerous. Truman needs to realize his limitations. He should also pay attention to things like warnings and fences. But let's remind viewers of exactly why Dad was written out in the first place. Kristoff tells us as Truman grew, they were forced to manufacture ways to keep him on the island. There's a cut to a classroom. Now we see a 9- or 10-year-old Truman in front of the class. He says he wants to be an explorer. Like the Great Magellan. Unlike every teacher I've ever had, the white-haired woman playing Truman's teacher immediately crushes his dreams. She pulls down one of those Venetian blind maps that used to be in every classroom. Oh, you're too late. There's really nothing left to explore. Cut to Truman on a dock being stopped by a snarling dog. Kristoff says he finally came up with the idea for Kirk's drowning. We cut to more footage from the fateful voyage. Mike says the ploy has been most effective. Truman's been terrified of the water ever since. Like any actor who gets written off a hit show, Kristoff said Walter was a bit upset about the Death at Sea episode, disappointed to say the least. We get more behind-the-scenes footage from the boating accident. We can see Walter is being helped away by a scuba diver. He's spitting and cussing as he goes. He'd really rather not be leaving this cush acting gig. And I'm sure that's what caused him to break back onto the set. We see a replay of the hug from last night when Dad returned. Mike wants to know how Kristoff is going to explain Kirk's 22-year absence. Kristoff's answer is so serious and heavy from his delivery you'd think he's reinvented modern storytelling, yet he's going with the most hackneyed soap plotline imaginable. Amnesia. Mike, of course, would never question the great Kristoff. Brilliant. Time to go to the phones for some calls. Charlotte, North Carolina, you're on with Kristoff. Uh, yeah, uh, hi, Kristoff. I was just wondering how many cameras you got there in that town. Kristoff doesn't have an exact count, but he does say it's somewhere in the vicinity of 5,000. The nervous caller is Captain Obvious. That's a lot of cameras. As we are hearing this call, the shot goes to a bank of monitors, all with Kristoff's picture in them. The monitors are labeled with numbers and letters. If you're a fan of Pixar Studios, you may have caught an A113 reference here. The camera finally settles on the monitor labeled A114, but right next to it, we clearly caught an A113 notation. 
sticking an A113 in a movie started as a Pixar Easter egg. There's at least one in most Pixar features. In the real world, it's a classroom number. Several graduates of the California Institute of Arts were hired as 3D animators at Pixar. Although they had attended at different times, they all shared a memory of a particular class. You had to take it as an animator, and it met in room A113. These A113 war stories became so common, the Pixar animators decided to memorialize the room number in their art. Although introduced by Pixar, other CIA graduates picked up on the Easter egg and they started to slip their own salutes to A113 into their projects. Not sure who, but somebody from either the art department or a CGI animator slipped in an A113 right here. After the caller is suitably impressed by Kristoff's collection of cameras, he does remind us... We started with just one. There's a cut to an in utero shot of Truman. Kristoff said Truman was curious going back to his birth. Premature by two weeks. It was almost as if he couldn't wait to get started. Mike fills in a little backstory. The production was tracking five unwanted pregnancies. Truman was the one who arrived on cue. Above Truman's crib, we can see that first camera Kristoff mentioned swinging in the mobile. It isn't even hidden. In Peter Weir's history of the show, he said it was originally planned to only run for one year. The first year would be called Bringing Up Baby, not The Truman Show. It was designed so new and expectant mothers could tune in for parenting tips. Oh, and they were also selling everything from diapers and wipes to the crib the kid was laying in. When the network research revealed the audience was made up of everyone, not just moms, they decided to try and keep the show going. There was also the concern they couldn't keep fooling him once he became aware. This is where Kristoff's theory of the world we're presented, combined with smaller and smaller camera tech, took over to give us the show we have today. So how exactly could a company just grab a child to use in their TV show? Oh, Mike fills us in on this sordid and creepy detail. I believe Truman is the first child to have been legally adopted by a corporation. Kristoff, over folded hands, says... That's correct. Wow, that sure says loving and caring, doesn't it? Truman was an asset on a corporate balance sheet. In a long shot of the control room, we can see signs over each bank of monitors. They identify where the group of cameras are located in town. We've already visited Lancaster Plaza. Also visible is a sign for DeMille Street. He was an actor first, but Cecil B. DeMille was so much more. He is considered a founding father of American cinema and the most commercially successful producer-director in history. Even if he's not known for his acting, it's very fitting that Cecil B. DeMille would have a street here in Seahaven. Mike mentions the immense revenues being generated by the commercial-free Truman Show. Equivalent to the gross national product of uh, a small country. Kristoff looks a bit annoyed at this mention of the commercial side of his art. He points out how it practically takes the population of a country to keep a production like this one going. Mr. Michelson mentions those immense revenues come through product placement. That's true. Everything on the show is for sale. We cut to various shots of Truman products being used by happy customers. And, of course, all of it available in the Truman catalog, and operators are standing by. With the product pitch over, Mike shifts gears. Why does Kristoff think Truman has never come this close to figuring out what's really happening to him? You can tell Kristoff has been asked this one before. We accept the reality of the world with which we're presented. It's as simple as that. We all experience this to some extent. If you grew up on the East Coast 
to the United States, you probably had fluffernutters and egg creams as you were growing up. I only know about these things from reading books and watching TV. In the Midwest, we had peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and A&W root beer. Whichever you had, you accepted it. Like Christoph says, we accept the reality that's presented. It's as simple as that. Mike goes to the phones. The Hague for Christoph. Hello. The Hague. All right, we've lost that call. I'm pretty sure this was a crank call. The Hague is the capital of the province of South Holland and the third largest city in the Netherlands. The Hague is also the world's courtroom. It's the site of the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. War crimes and despicable international crimes against humanity are tried at The Hague for the entire world. I'm thinking this call from The Hague is intended as a statement. It's somebody pointing out Kristoff's crimes against Truman, I'm sure. They just didn't have the guts to follow through and actually confront Kristoff. This won't be a problem for our next caller. Mike takes us to Hollywood, California. Hi, Christoph. I'd just like to say one thing. You're a liar and a manipulator, and what you've done to Truman is sick. Hey, we recognize that voice, and so does Christoph. Christoph repositions himself in his chair. He's getting ready for a fight. Mike starts to go to another caller, but Christoph waves him off, saying it's fine. I love to reminisce with former members of the cast. Christoph does not seem like one who can be shaken from his convictions. He thinks what he's doing is right normal, and even good for Truman. He's also very good at cutting down the rabble and lowlifes who don't understand how much he's suffered for his art. You think because you batted your eyes that Truman once flirted with him, stole a few minutes of airtime with him to thrust yourself and your politics into the limelight? That you know him. Sylvia is pacing, stalking her apartment as she is on the phone. Some folks think these stripes on her pajamas are supposed to symbolize a prison outfit, showing solidarity with the prisoner Truman. Eh, maybe. There is a lot of stuff in the background of these apartment shots that's really interesting. There are several bumper stickers and banners. One says, first Truman, who's next? Our children? Hmm, sounds like the whole mind collective would be taking up the Truman cause if they didn't have severance to protest against. There's a poster for a free Truman rally. It includes the My Little Clown pic behind the prison bars above and a picture of adult Truman below, also behind bars. The bib the parachute guy wore saying Truman is on TV is also here in her apartment. Sylvia is an organizer and instigator. It looks like she might have a network of folks working to free Truman. You can glimpse notes where she's approached various cast members about being agents. Kristoff is getting wound up and righteous. His voice quavers with anger as he asks Sylvia, does she really think she knows what's right for him? You really think you're in a position to judge him? Sylvia is yelling both at the screen and into the phone. Pretty gutsy of Mike to be taking calls live without a delay. What right do you have to take a baby and, and, and turn his life into some kind of mockery? And wow, that British accent really comes through here. She wants to know if Kristoff ever feels guilty. Well, of course not. If he had the slightest pang of guilt about any of this, he'd have shut it all down years ago. In his mind, he is rich, famous, powerful, talented, and above all, right. His ratings numbers reinforce this high opinion he has of himself. How dare anyone question the mighty Kristoff? I have given Truman the chance to lead a normal life. Uh, what now?
I guess that's right if you call normal being confined to a small island filled with hidden cameras and populated by actors pretending to be everyone from townspeople to your wife, mother, and best friend. It just doesn't sound all that normal. But Kristoff has a sweeping justification for imprisoning Truman in this place. The world, the place you live in, is the sick place. Okay. Kristoff says Sea Haven is the way the world should be. Red flags a-wavin'. Take note, refiners, anytime anyone unilaterally decides for you that a situation is how life should be, it's time to get the hell out. That person is a dictator who doesn't care about your opinion or individual freedoms. They only want to create the utopia they've envisioned, even if it oppresses those who live there. Kristoff says without a hint of irony that Truman is not a prisoner. He could leave at any time. Oh, sure, without any form of mass transportation available to him, and as long as he's ready to brave a forest fire and elude the guys in hazmat suits during a nuclear meltdown. Sure, Truman, doors always open. Split whenever you feel like it. Kristoff is rationalizing at a world-class level. He says if Truman were serious, if he really wanted to know the truth... There's no way we could prevent him. So, what, today wasn't serious enough for you? Maybe he should have run down a few of those cops outside the nuclear power plant just to show how serious he is. This line of BS is purely salve to Kristoff's conscience. He says these things with such gravitas and conviction, he's hoping you'll believe him. No matter how sincere or intimidating he might be, there's no way to hide the fact his science experiment has run amok. He can't contain it without resorting to extreme measures, yet he's still claiming no one's a prisoner. Kristoff has had people gunning for him for 30 years. He can counter protester arguments in his sleep. It's true he's never been this unnerved by Truman's actions, but rebuffing the opinions of outsiders comes easy to Kristoff. He claims he knows what's really got Sylvia so upset. Truman prefers his cell. As you call it. I would argue Truman's most recent actions have clearly demonstrated he's quite fed up with his cell and wants out. Sylvia sees it the same way. She thinks Kristoff is wrong. You're so wrong, and he'll prove you wrong. Sylvia hangs up, and Mike smoothly wraps the show. He's relieved this current Kirk crisis is past, and he wants to know what's ahead. Kristoff mentions Merrill will be leaving Truman in an upcoming episode, and a new love interest will be introduced. Here comes Vivian. Kristoff repeats his goal, and I'm starting to think Kristoff is a bit of a perv. I'm determined the television's first on-air conception will still take place. Who exactly is out there clamoring for this on-air conception to happen? Fellow pervs like Lawrence, who applauded the thought during the deleted scene, are probably up for it. But to me, the whole thing feels pretty gross. Well, another television milestone straight ahead. That's it, Mike. Keep kissing up to the big guy. It has been a singular honor and a pleasure, sir. Christoph, thank you. Mike, I was joking. This is getting embarrassing. Thank you, Mike. If they weren't in different studios, I really think Mike would have kissed the ring. Sylvia is reaching out to the television screen, stroking the image of Truman's face. There's a quick cut to Napoleon in the bathtub. He's sacked out. Look to the left of his head in the back corner of the tub. It's a reproduction of the Seahaven lighthouse. There's a reverse cut to the bathtub TV screen. Truman is asleep, being watched by a night vision camera. 
ignore Napoleon's toes and check the decorative life preserver to the left of the screen. It says SS America on the life preserver with a pair of American flags. Smiling from the middle of the preserver like a guest star on the love boat is Merrill. It's Hannah Gill in a promo shot watching over our pruny bather. Back in the lunar room, Kristoff seems to have showered, I would guess. He lives there. He's wearing black silk pajamas with a towel around his neck, and he isn't wearing his bougie cap. Kristoff also strokes Truman's face on the giant screen in front of him. The music continues. It has a haunting and repetitive quality because this is a piece from the other composer on the film, the rather famous Philip Glass. Just like John Pramick earlier, Philip is seated at the keyboard and is scoring the scene live. If there is a person who could live score a scene like this, it would definitely be Philip Glass. I am a bit concerned because I think Mr. Glass may have been slighted here. Philip is quite a bit older and craggier looking than the young and handsome Mr. Pramick, who was the stand-in earlier for Dalwitz. We got a nice close-in one on Pramick, but we never get close to Philip Glass while he's at the keyboard. It's definitely him. He gets the same credit as Pramick, but he is barely visible in the long shot. If you don't know the name or work of Philip Glass, where have you been the last 50 years? Glass has worked as a composer on 186 movies and shorts going back to 1968. He has five projects currently upcoming. His style is one of repetitive patterns, usually triplets, that move up and down the scale. His work is hypnotizing and soothing, so it's perfect for movie scores. Night has passed. We cut to another perfect Sea Haven sunrise. There's an establishing shot of Truman from high and behind him in the bathroom. He's just finishing up brushing his teeth. He looks in the mirror with a blank expression. The shot cuts to the big monitor in the lunar room. We are now looking at Truman from the hidden camera behind the mirror. The way he's looking at the camera is a little off-putting. Hey, Simeon. Wow. Simeon is the name of Paul Giamatti's character. When I first heard it, I thought of Simeon as in a monkey or ape. Different spelling. The monkey version of Simeon is S-I-M-I-A-N. Giamatti's name is Simeon with an E-O-N at the end. This version of the word is Old Testament and very important. Simeon is one of the sons of Jacob and Leah. He is first named in chapter 29 of Genesis. Simeon was the father of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's a very influential guy. When you add this name Simeon in with the rest of the crew up in the lunar room, I think we're getting a lot of biblical symbolism out of Peter Weir and Andrew Nicole. We already talked about Christoph, meaning bearing Christ. The network suits are named Roman and Moses, so those are pretty obvious. Chloe is a biblical name from 1 Corinthians. Her name in Greek means fertility or blooming. The biblical references are thick up in the lunar room. Quick little detail from this two-shot of the techs in the control room. Check their feet. They're wearing those little blue paper booties over their shoes. They're like what the carpet cleaner might wear when working in your house or medical personnel in an operating room. I can see Kristoff being a neat freak to the point of obsession. I'm betting anyone who enters the lunar room is required to put on these booties to keep unwanted contamination from entering Kristoff's world. Anyone that is, except the network suits, I don't see Moses or Roman putting on booties. 
The control room tech assisting Simeon is never named, but he's being played by Adam Tomei. Adam's an American actor born in New York in October of 1967. He's been working in movies and on TV going back to 1994. He has a total of 46 acting credits with two upcoming. Adam stays busy, but there are not a lot of recognizable titles in his resume. If the name Tomei sounds familiar, you're right. Adam Tomei is the younger brother of Academy Award-winning actress Marisa Tomei. Simeon turns his chair to look at the monitor. Truman is still staring back, his expression entirely blank. Is he looking at us? It does seem like he's looking right through the camera. Jesus, do you think he knows? When Truman says, Hello? It's a little freaky. Simeon puts down his newspaper and says they'd better call Kristoff. Hello? Come in, Major Burbank. Oh, hold on a minute. It's another skit from the bathroom. Truman picks up the soap and starts to draw a space helmet on the mirror. This scene has been written about extensively, and I think the specifics have been jumbled up a bit in the retelling. Jim Carrey said this bit with the soap came from his actual morning routine. He regularly entertains himself with little skits and ad-libs in front of the mirror. He said in an interview that he once even drew an entire mermaid with long curly hair. This story has been retold by entertainment reporters as one of the outtakes from this scene is Truman drawing a mermaid with long curly hair. I don't think that's right. It sounded like he was mentioning the mermaid thing as an example, not as something they shot. There are other parts of this scene about Planet Trumania, which we don't get to see here. One of the trailers put out by the studio actually contained Truman singing a little snip of the Trumania National Anthem. So unused mirror footage does exist, but I don't think there's any out there of a mermaid. Simeon chuckles and hangs up the phone. He's back to his old self. Oh my god. Is he, or does he want you to think he's back so you won't be on guard for more escape attempts? I think Truman has quietly adopted an adversarial attitude regarding his captors, whoever they might be. He's sneakier than they give him credit for, and he's very motivated to escape. Truman is peering around from inside his soap-drawn Martian helmet. That's an unusual cat, my man. Yes, he is. I think this might be the result of 30 years of captivity on Sea Haven. Truman draws a little flag and declares this planet to be... Trumania of the Burbank Galaxy. Truman then wipes down the mirror and cryptically says... That one's for free. What does he mean by that, and who is he talking to? Is this Truman talking to his unseen captors or possibly his invisible audience? Has he realized he's a trained monkey on display for everyone's amusement? No one reacts to it, but that one's for free. Does make me wonder. The techs start to call up other cameras around the house. They're preparing for him to leave going to work. He does this every morning, but the shots still have to be called in order to make the sequence happen. We cut to Truman stepping outside. Just like the first morning we were with him, he calls to the neighbors. Morning! The TV pretty family across the street is in position just like every morning. They wave back. Good morning! Morning! Truman goes into his, oh, in case I don't see you, part of the greeting. The family finishes it for him. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> Truman has a hearty, possibly too hearty, laugh over this. 
Jim Carrey has said his father influenced a lot of Truman's mannerisms. His dad was an energetic and funny guy who drew people to him. Jim said his dad was the kind who wanted to make sure everyone around him was covered, that their needs were always being met. Carey said this greeting, which covers the people he meets for the rest of the day, is the perfect encapsulation of his dad. As Truman heads off for work, we cut back to the Japanese family we met earlier. This trio is being played by Yuji Akamoto as the father, Kyoko Yamaguchi as mom, and Seimi Nakamura as the daughter. Yuji, the dad, is an American actor born in L.A. in 1959. He has 100 IMDb credits with one of those upcoming. Kyoko, the mom, is an actress with 14 IMDb performer credits. She also does a lot of commercial and voiceover work. Seimi, the daughter, was actually born in Tokyo, but has lived in L.A. since the early 90s. I found a fun little Hollywood story about Seimi. One of her earliest U.S. auditions was for the 1994 Oliver Stone film Natural Born Killers. She tried out for the role of Japanese reporter. Seems like a laydown, but Sammy says she blew the audition and was sent away. Desperation in Hollywood can cause a person to do some crazy things. She decided to go back in and try it again. The second time through, hoping they wouldn't remember her, she claimed the whole reason she had come to the United States from Japan was to audition for Oliver Stone and this movie. It worked. The second audition with the story got her the job. It's a good thing IMDb wasn't around back then. Samey had done an episode of Lois and Clark the previous year. Samey has a total of 36 performer credits. She did land a five-episode arc on the TV series Heroes back in 2007. Check the shot of the Japanese family's kitchen. I do not read or speak Japanese, but I have seen a fun detail about this scene mentioned in a couple of places. There are pictures framed on the wall behind the family. The one on the left is Truman, the one on the right is Merrill. There is writing in Japanese on these frames. According to an IMDb trivia contributor, the frame around Truman says Truman every day in Japanese. Well, you know how I'm not much for believing trivia items without a little proof. I may not read Japanese, but I do have Google Translator. I ran both frames through the magic machine. Traditional Japanese is written starting in the upper right corner of the page. You read down and to the left. For each of these frames, the grouping of characters that runs down the right side of the frame are their names, Truman Burbank and Merrill Burbank. Translate says they're spelling Merrill, M-E-R-R-I-L-L, -L, although credit lists say it's spelled M-E-R-Y-L, like Ms. Streep. Moving left on Truman's frame, the middle grouping of characters says every day, and the vertical group to the farthest left says 24 hours. So Truman every day, 24 hours a day. It confirms the trivia item. Merrill's frame, which nobody translated, has a visible header which says good woman. We can't see if there's a header over Truman, but his probably says good man. Merrill's name is that group of characters running down the far right side. The middle and far left characters form the phrase, please watch it every day. Japanese dad is decked out in a Truman Collection golf shirt with a Truman picture button. Daughter's wearing a Merrill Daisy decorated sweater with a picture of Merrill in a Daisy button. Mom is still in her Truman themed sweatshirt. More of the orange and yellow Truman Collection latte mugs are visible on their table. Good afternoon, good, good morning, evening, and good, good night. Kristoff is cleaning up internationally. We cut to the view from next door neighbor Spencer's trash can cam. Morning, Truman. Morning, Spencer. Truman is animated and deliriously happy this morning. 
Is he too happy? Is he putting on for the cameras he now believes are watching him? I'd say yeah. We rapid cut through Truman's morning. There's another encounter with the twins in front of the poster. Kaiser Chicken is gone. Today we're promoting Carlton Colonial Homes. The policy. We thought about it and, and we're, we're going to take it. You're kidding. Oh, great. Well, they say they're going to take it, but let's wait until next week to sign. If they ever actually buy a policy, what would they have to talk about in front of the poster? We cut to Truman at his desk on the phone with a potential client. This is about the great variable. When will death occur? Just how small are these amazing cameras developed for Kristoff? Truman turns to sharpen a pencil. We cut to a shot from inside the pencil sharpener. This camera is the diameter of a pencil looking out of the barrel of the sharpener. When the sharpener starts to spin, so does the camera. We've seen so many tiny cameras I had to know. How small are real cameras? None of this was around in the mid-90s when the movie was being produced, but cameras, or at least camera sensors this small, have arrived. The Omnivision OV6948 was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records in 2020 as the smallest commercially available image sensor ever produced. It's less than half a millimeter square, which is smaller than a grain of sand. It was designed to fit into the tiniest of human veins to aid surgeons. The picture is not broadcast quality, but it can do 200 by 200 pixel resolution at 30 frames a second. It broadcasts an analog output signal up to four meters away. They are surprisingly affordable at about 52 bucks each. The catch, you have to buy them in full trays of 192. They are mostly sold to hospitals and surgery centers. Truman is still on the phone and spinning tales of accidental death when Lawrence approaches. The lovely Heidi Schantz, who we met in the deleted scene, is with him. Uh, Truman, this is Vivian. Vivian, this is Truman. Two of you are going to be neighbors. And fall in love and get married and have a kid together. Vivian gives Truman a killer smile. Truman is entranced. I think he may have even forgotten about Fiji in that moment. He's still talking to his potential client. I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is that... Uh... Life is fragile. Wow, no moss growing on this guy. Unless there was some kind of time jump they snuck in here, the big Merrill dust-up happened last night. She left him either last night or she's home packing right now. Truman seems to be pretty cool about it. He's already flirting with his new desk neighbor. Truman is so transported by the lovely Vivian, he completely forgets he's on the phone with a client. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you do? Oh, great. Hey, he even got a sale. Let me uh, let me take your information. Everything's coming up Truman. As Truman is taking down the information, we cut to a bright red elk rotary lawnmower. Isn't that the one Merrill was talking about the other night in the basement? Those new elk rotaries are the best. I even saw Truman using one. Truman is mowing in the same striped shirt the Japanese dad was wearing. He's also got on a pair of red shorts, black socks, and a fedora. Your real dad would embarrass you if he went outside looking like this. There's a cut to a plate of pizza next to a miniature of Sea Haven. It looks like a big snow globe containing the entire town. A hand grabs a piece of pizza and we follow it up to the mouth of Simeon. He's checking out the classifieds in the Los Angeles Times. He figures since Truman is getting wise, it might be time to start looking for a new job. We don't get a time cue, but it must be that night. Simeon seems to be the assistant director on the board during overnights. He's sitting in Kristoff's Captain Kirk chair. As he takes a bite of pizza, he does a director's call. 
Ready to go to two. If it sounds like he's bored out of his mind, that would be because he is. This is a pretty accurate depiction of live directing. New shows, morning shows, game shows, it doesn't matter how repetitive a sequence might be, every shot has to be called every time. And back to medium. When Drew Carey steps over to play a game on The Price is Right, everyone in the booth knows the sequence. The camera people, the person switching the board, everybody knows exactly how it's supposed to happen. And wide. Even though they've all done it a thousand times, nothing will happen unless the director makes these calls. Uh-oh. Kristoff is at the door in his pajamas. Simeon jumps up like he's been caught doing something wrong. I was just trying to train the kid to... So maybe he should have been the one on the switcher instead of directing. Kristoff doesn't say a word. He's looking at the main monitor with concern. What's he doing in the basement? One of the other techs who had been riding an exercise bike down in front of the screen runs off camera. The wide night vision shot shows what looks like a quilt with somebody under it. He moved down there after Meryl packed up and left. Kristoff wants to know why he wasn't told. Any unpredictable behavior has to be reported. Simeon kind of stammers. Is this really unpredictable? He's just sleeping. You can tell Kristoff is getting a bad feeling. He wants to know if this is the best shot they've got. What's to say? We're told the clock cam is obstructed. Kristoff is getting agitated. You can tell he thinks something is off. He wants to know what happened down there. He was just tidying up his garbage. Simeon waves it off as nothing. Truman was tidying, got tired, went to sleep. Simeon was going to call Kristoff, but it didn't seem like a big deal. Kristoff wants to see the setups for the insurance conference scheduled for tomorrow. This is the one they mentioned in the deleted scene. It's where the Vivian Pass will be made, and hopefully the affair will begin. Simeon pulls up views of the conference sets. Kristoff has wandered over by the big domed window. Something's nagging at him. Isolate the audio. Kristoff puts on headphones and calls for a close-up on Truman's torso. We can hear breathing, snoring. It sounds like someone's sleeping. He's still breathing. Kristoff is sure he's being scammed. He shouts for Chloe, who somehow just happens to be there. Call him. What do you Tell mean? him it's a wrong number. The shot holds on the sleeping Truman as Chloe dials. When the phone starts to ring, we cut to the security guards at the parking garage. One of them is just getting back with food. The shot on their TV is the same one we were seeing in the lunar room. What's going on? I don't know. They're... Cut to Simeon now scouring through footage from earlier in the evening. He came down into the room. He did nothing but stand around for a while. Kristoff is hot. He shouts at Simeon to shut up and watch it. Then we went to night fishing. He's asleep. The phone keeps ringing. If he's asleep, it's a very deep sleep. While on the night vision shot, Kristoff sees something. There! Stop it. He points to a spot low on the screen over near the bottom of the basement stairs. They do an impossible zoom in and enhance. By the way, if you ever see them do this kind of thing on a cop show, like with a license plate or a perp's face, it doesn't work. The pixel count is so tiny, zooming in will only break it up more. It's fun to think it might be possible to enhance a one-inch square taken out of a low-res night vision frame, but you really can't. When the picture resolves, we see it's a hand where one shouldn't be. Simeon stammers. He says Truman must still be in the room. There's no way he could have gone up the stairs undetected. Kristoff orders Chloe to get Marlon over there. Marlon must live somewhere on the set. They have him working all hours of the day and night. He seems to always be immediately available. 
Marlins Red Ranger pickup comes squealing around a corner. There's not another soul in sight. They're all home in their beds somewhere in Los Angeles. Marlin screeches to a halt in front of number 36. He hops out of the cab with a six of pen pavels in hand. He arrives in the very trashed basement. Party. Our camera view is coming from under the stairs. Marlon works his way through the room, still talking to Truman. When he pulls off the quilt, he finds an inflatable snowman and a tape recorder. I doubt Truman has ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but somebody on this movie's production team must be a fan. <sighs> yeah, Kristoff is not happy. This is downright embarrassing. Marlon, find him. He's still in the room. Notice how Kristoff refers to him as Marlon. When he's on set, he stops being Lewis. Come out, come out, wherever you are. Kristoff says that's good. Keep it light. Kristoff directs Marlon to check under the table where they'd seen the hand move. The closet, behind you. Marlon sounds like a parent playing peekaboo with a toddler. Gee, I wonder where he could possibly be. Oh, and yeah, that's a huge map of the Fiji Islands behind Marlin's head. I say Kristoff was actively feeding Truman's Lauren obsession. When Marlin opens the closet door, it's a little like when the guards took down the poster in Andy Dufresne's cell. There's a stepladder and a hole up through the ceiling. It's letting in light. Kristoff understands immediately what he's looking at. Lawn cam. Give me the lawn cam. The main monitor cuts to the lawn cam just as Marlon's head pops up. He looks like Bill Murray will be along any minute to hit him with a weed whacker. Lewis then does the worst possible thing any television actor can ever do. He looks right down the barrel of the lens. Don't look in the camera. Say something. Keep it going. Keep it going. He's gone. Mm, Yeah, if it's called The Truman Show and Truman is gone, there's really not much to keep going. Kristoff then shouts something shocking. Cut transmission! Simeon isn't even sure he's heard him correctly. Cut transmission? There are beads of sweat on Giamatti's brow. The man is truly the consummate performer. Cut it! Kristoff storms over to the control board. The screen goes black. We cut to the Truman Bar. Oh, Jesus, oh, God heaven! The elderly ladies in their living room are sacked out as classical music begins playing. The one on the left wakes up and nudges the one on the right. We get a reverse cut to the TV screen. A generic full-screen Truman Show graphic card is up with a crawl that says, Technical fault, please stand by. We cut back to the Lunar Room. There's been a bit of a time jump. A huge number of staff members have assembled. The switchboard's going crazy. We can hear people taking calls in several different languages. Kristoff enters the room. He's changed to be properly turned out for the troops. Instead of silk pajamas and bareheaded, he's in all black with his artistic cap firmly in place. Simeon brings him up to speed on the Find Truman operation. Extras, principals, and crew are all out looking. Every sector is covered. What about prop cars? Yes, they've been accounted for. Truman has to be on foot. He has the world's most recognizable face. He can't disappear. We then get a shot from down on the set looking out over the water. The moon suddenly brightens like it's a spotlight. It sweeps the water with a huge beam. Whoever did this animation was getting high fives all over the office after it rendered. That's a pretty cool move. 
A siren starts to wail and we can hear feet marching. Extras become visible walking the streets of Seahaven arm in arm. Some are carrying flashlights. They're scouring every inch of the place. In one close-up, we can see Mom and Dad Burbank walking arm in arm with a group of searchers. Spencer is out with Pluto the dog, and Pluto is in full-on attack mode. Hi, Holland, as Alanis, says they don't need to be going to all this fuss. If you could just hear my voice. Truman! Truman! Marlin is talking to the control room. He says they're about done with the square. Gotta go back to Barrymore. Check the interiors. Barrymore is another street name. Again, someone much younger than I has taken a shot on IMDb trivia at identifying the inspiration for this one. They said it's named after Drew Barrymore. I would respectfully disagree. Although Ms. Barrymore is a wonderful actress, in 1998, she was only 23 years old. If we're talking Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, Marlon Brando, and Jimmy Stewart, I would say this name has to be inspired by Drew's great uncle, Lionel Barrymore. I did discover an interesting tidbit about Drew while researching the family. Drew is not a nickname or short for anything. It's a family name. Drew's great-grandmother's maiden name was Georgiana Emma Drew. She was mother to Lionel, Ethel, and John. Simeon asks Marlon who's checking the college. They decide to send somebody over. We get a quick shot of the twins on headsets. They've reverted to their security guard personas now that Truman is missing. I don't give okay. a damn. Just find the son of a bitch. Well, get some batteries. This guy's not going to glow in the dark. Let's get him down here. The bridge is blocked by a couple of police cruisers, so no way off the island there. It's chaos in the lunar room. Kristoff says they need more light. There's no way they're going to find him like this. What time is it? Chloe doesn't answer. She just says it's way too early for that. Kristoff wants to fire up the sun. Sunrise in Seahaven is whenever Kristoff says it is. Today, it's going to be quite a bit earlier than usual. Kristoff ignores Chloe's concern. Cue the sun. We get a shot from across the water. The sun shoots up into the sky. The searchers on the common gasp and shield their eyes. Back up in the lunar room, Moses from the network wants some answers. What's going on? He's already hearing rumors Truman is dead. The phone lines are jammed. It's a media feeding frenzy. Oh, and there's also Marlon. And every network has a pirated shot of Marlon making an ass of himself in front of the camera. Roman, dressed in a tux, jumps in with even more good news. This sponsors are threatening to rip up the contract. This makes no sense to Kristoff. He says they're getting a higher rating with the Please Stand By graphic than they've ever had on the show. I think for a lot of viewers, Truman is like The Simpsons or Saturday Night Live. They have loved and watched the show at various times in their lives, but they come and go as viewers. They might drift away for a while, then run across it and think, oh wow, that's still on? Here, just like when SNL sometimes hits with a new character or some funny impression, the show gets a bump in ratings when something unusual happens. Marlon checks in, telling Simeon there's no sign. Simeon tells him everyone is going to first position, and he should too. First position is a film term, which sounds way more important than it really is. When you block a scene, an actor is told where to start from when the director calls action, where to go during the shot, and where to end up. 
the starting spot is called first position. In a big shot like a crowd scene or a battle, it's easy for the director to reset the shot for another take by calling all actors to first position. The Truman Show doesn't have takes, but they do have to get things going. Kristoff uses first position as a way to start the day here on Sea Haven. The camera pans across the square. It's kind of eerie seeing everyone standing still waiting for the call to action. You can see the gears turning under Kristoff's cap. Suddenly, it dawns on him why they haven't located Truman. We're not watching the sea. Simeon wonders why they'd watch the sea. Kristoff has figured out that Truman knows the one place they'd never think to look for him is in the middle of his greatest fear. So how do you turn that to your advantage? You overcome your fear and escape by boat. Sweep the harbor. The monitors start to switch over to water scenes. Some of the harbor cameras are out, but they have a number of working buoy cameras and the lighthouse cameras. Suddenly there's water everywhere on the monitors. Moses can be heard in the background wondering why we're looking at water. Kristoff is studying the bank of monitors, searching for his boy. Truman, where are you going? Monitor A-108 has the picture. There he is, Captain Truman, out in a sailboat. How can he sail? He's in insurance. Isn't he terrified of the water? Kristoff has his shot, so he decides to let everyone back in on what's happening. Resume transmission. When we switch over from the trouble graphic to a sailboat, we get quick cuts to the viewers. Napoleon in the tub springs forward and chuckles. In the Truman Bar, the bartender's already taking prop bets on whether he'll make it. The parking garage guards are transfixed. Someone is tapping on the window with their keys. Just leave them in the car. We start to see shots from the boat. Kristoff wants off the mass shot. They take the cabin cam. Truman, looking like a sailor in his black wool coat and captain's hat, fills the frame. That's our hero shot. Truman searches his pockets for something. He's brought along his composite picture of Sylvia slash Lauren. It's starting to look amazingly like her. There's a cut to Sylvia watching and smiling. As Truman passes by a buoy cam, we can see he's piloting the Santa Maria. Yes, as in the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. Truman is off to discover a new world. Kristoff wants to get another boat out there. Chloe has production contact the guys on the ferry. The ferry captain grinds the gears the same way he did on the bus. It's a no-go. Bottom line is they can't drive the boat. They're actors. Back up in the lunar room, Roman asks the question on everyone's mind. How do we stop them? Kristoff catches Simeon's eye. Simeon knows what tool they have that could stop Truman, but I don't think he wants to do it. Kristoff gives him a nod. The boss wins. Okay, uh... We're going to be accessing the weather program now. So hold on to your hats. If you've ever thought about being a supervillain who controls the weather, you might want to check out Kristoff's weather machine. Simeon switches to a control screen with a number of buttons and sliders on it. Kristoff runs his weather machine on a Mac, by the way. The buttons allow you to select from lightning, drizzle, storm, wind, low tide, high tide, and tidal wave. These sliders adjust fog, rain, wind, and wave intensity. They can be adjusted from light to moderate to heavy to danger. Currently, wind and wave intensity is set about halfway between none and light. Simeon is coordinating over his comm. He says they'll want to localize the storm over the boat. Chloe is concerned. There's no rescue boat. She says he won't know what to do. He'll turn back. He'll be too afraid. 
Kristoff has an unwavering faith in the power of Truman's phobias and his control. He doesn't realize the level of resolve Truman is bringing to the table. She blows. Suddenly the storm is on him. We cut to a camera on the boat. A drenching rain has rolled in with waves crashing over the bow. Truman tries the starter, but it's swamped. Truman is fighting with the main mast. The wind is about to rip the ropes out of his hands. Give me some lightning. You know, just the way God does it. Thunder and lightning crash around Truman. Kristoff is relentless. Again. Hit him again. Truman can't hold on. He goes in the water. Our guy in the bathtub is distraught. The boat is going on by. Moses thinks this has gone far enough. The whole world is watching. We can't let him die in front of a live audience. Oh, you think? Wow, a network suit with a heart. I don't know what this next line has to do with anything other than Kristoff believing he is the Alpha and the Omega. He was born in front of a live audience. We cut back to Jim Carrey bobbing on some enormous waves. These scenes are being shot in a tank on the Universal lot, and that is really Jim Carrey. I don't know what everybody was thinking, but this almost did not go well. Jim Carrey described what happened in harrowing detail during a 2018 interview. This story is so crazy, I have to read exactly what he said. When Carrey was asked to describe the experience of the storm, he said, quote, I was wearing wool clothing, a big wool sweater, wool pants, and shoes, and they had jet engines blowing on me, and they had these giant wave machines that were creating gale force waves. I don't know if you can see it in the film, but they've got divers under the water, and I'm actually giving the signal of, like, I'm in trouble, which was a clenched fist. They just saw it as acting. I went under. I had no breath left, and I was drowning. I was under the water at the bottom of the pool, and with my last breath, with the last hint of consciousness, I spun and made a couple of gigantic strokes toward the back of the storm and came up outside the storm, gasping for air and exhausted. I just barely made it to the edge of the wall where the sky is and hung there on the edge of the wall, gasping for air, looking back at the storm that was still raging. It went on for another minute and then slowly shut down. They didn't know where I was and then they finally saw me and came over. I almost died. That was the real deal. Unquote. Truman manages to pull himself back on board. He grabs one of the rails. The Truman bar erupts. <laughs> oh hey, Napoleon does have a line. He's almost out of his bathwater, gripping the shower curtain. You can do it! Hold on! Truman is empowered. He shouts to his unseen captors and tormentors. Is that the best you can do? He says they're gonna have to kill him. Truman then launches into a demented version of what shall we do with a drunken sailor. Moses has seen enough. On behalf of the network, he tells Kristoff to cease transmission. You know what you don't do in the lunar room? You don't tell Kristoff to do anything. Keep running. Kristoff is like a father dealing with his headstrong teenage son, only Kristoff has access to the powers of nature. Increase the wind. Giamatti and Adam Tomei just look at him like he can't be serious. Increase the wind! Is Kristoff really trying to kill him? If Kristoff can't have him, no one can? 
Simeon slides the wind control into the red. Truman is getting closer and closer to the wall. Capsize him. Tip him over. The narcissist is out of the box and his worldview is being questioned. Damn you, Kristoff! No, you can't. His titan's up to the boat. Shut up! Simeon is almost in tears. He tells Kristoff Truman is going to drown and he doesn't even care. It's a suicide mission. He's either going to finally escape or die trying. Do it! Kristoff hits a control in front of Simeon. He watches passively as two huge waves come crashing over the boat. This is violent and brutal. Truman goes under. There's a cut to the Truman bar where everyone is silent. The boat has capsized. Truman's face goes floating by one of the cameras. He might be unconscious underwater. Kristoff finally relents. That's enough. Oh, it's way more than enough. You may have killed him. Amazingly, the sailboat rights itself. Truman, still tied to the wheel, rouses. He's coughing up water and barely able to move, but he's alive. Truman fights with the mast. He's able to raise the mainsail. Here we are clearly shown the number 139 on the sail. It's huge and right in the center of the screen. Hold on to that detail. We'll come back to it in just a moment. Just a few seconds after he's back underway, the bow of the boat crashes through the sky? It pierces the sky. There's a hole in the wall of the dome caused by the prow of Truman's boat. It has been noted that this ending strongly mirrors the ending of the C.S. Lewis novel, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's a part of the Narnia series. In it, a ship sailing to the end of the known world encounters a blue wall and a doorway leading to another world. Truman runs forward to survey the damage. That's when he sees the wall. He slowly puts his hand on it. At this moment, he realizes everything he suspected and feared is true. He starts to beat his fist against the wall. Truman walks along the lip of the tank to an open staircase. Kristoff grabs his tablet and has a seat in the Captain Kirk chair. I want to talk to him. Truman sees a button marked exit. As he opens the door, Kristoff whispers into his microphone. Truman. <gasps> Truman turns, looking into the heavens. He is hearing a voice coming from on high. Kristoff, watching on the tablet, tells him he can speak. I can hear you. Truman wants to know who this is. Listen to how Kristoff answers. Is it just me, or is there a big pause after creator? I am the creator of a television show that gives hope and joy and inspiration to millions. Okay, so if he's the creator, Truman wants to know, who am I? You're the star. Uh, you're the puppet, dude. Kristoff tries to convince Truman this world of Seahaven is so much better than the outside world. The outside world is also full of lies. Remember that big 139 we saw on the sale? It has been noted by dozens of reviewers that this is a tip of the hat to Psalm number 139. It's the one that gave us the phrase fearfully and wonderfully made. It's a long passage, but it's basically a conversation David is imagining having with God. David, the writer of the psalm, is in awe of the omniscient presence of God. David even asks, where can I flee from your presence? The big difference between Narcissus TV Boy and the real OG, David knows that God knows his every thought, his every word, even before it is on his tongue. Kristoff has a pretty high opinion of his place in Truman's life. I know you better than you know yourself. 
Kristoff's eh, good, but he could never really achieve this level of omniscience. As Truman reminds him... Never had a camera in my head. Where David was in awe, Truman is at odds with this voice that claims to be his creator god. Truman wants to know if anything was real. Nope, none of it. Only Truman. Kristoff, ever the manipulator, tells Truman he's afraid. It's why he can't leave. Kristoff starts to reminisce about past episodes, like the two of them have memories to share. His I was watching monologue is pretty creepy. The episode when you lost your first tooth. <laughs> Kristoff thinks he's going to be able to talk Truman out of leaving. Truman has his back to the camera. Kristoff gets frustrated. He tells Truman to say something. Say something, goddammit. You're on television. You're live to the whole world. We're getting inset shots throughout this interaction. Sylvia is praying Truman takes that next step. The Truman bar is packed and on pins and needles. Truman turns to the camera and smiles. In case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Kristoff's face collapses. He knows he's lost him forever. Truman bows deeply and turns to walk through the door in the sky. Sylvia laughs a relieved laugh and goes running out of her apartment building. The Truman bar goes nuts. Napoleon is splashing bathwater everywhere. All of the audience members we've been following are ecstatic. There is an item on the internet which keeps recurring and getting reposted. I've run across it several times during the research for this breakdown. It says Jim Carrey threw off Ed Harris by ad-libbing this final line to Kristoff. This post claims Carrey was supposed to say something other than the if I don't see you line, since Jim Carrey was completely shot out and gone from the set when Ed Harris was doing his part of these scenes. This is entirely impossible. Still, this factoid gets quoted and posted way too often. Our parking garage security guys get the last line of the show. Transmission has ceased. The excitement's over. The screen is snow. You want another slice? No, I'm okay. What else is on? Yeah, let's do what else is on. TV this is a comment about the constantly hungry open maw of the viewing public. No matter what we're given to watch, no matter how much we are entertained, it's never enough. There's always another show out there ready to feed the hunger, but it never lasts. We always need more and more, like, you know, a second season of Severance? The screen cuts to black and credits roll. Another oft-mentioned scene cut from early scripts would have happened right here. In an early draft, we go on through the wall with Truman. He meets Kristoff and the main cast members on a rooftop. The actors who've been lying to him for years stare at him sheepishly. Truman flies into a rage and attacks Kristoff. He tries to strangle his creator, but the rest of the cast hold him back. He is finally reunited with Sylvia, and he doesn't have to go to Fiji to find her. The Truman Show was a massive hit, both critically and economically. On an estimated $60 million budget, it grossed $125 million U.S. and over a quarter of a billion worldwide. The famous poster of Truman made up of hundreds of tiny images was created by artist Rob Silverman at a rumored cost of $75,000. Although The Truman Show was undeniably an important statement about society and media, there is a bias in the film industry against comedies, comedians, and especially comedians who try to do something other than comedies. The treatment The Truman Show received from the Motion Picture Academy is emblematic of this bias. 
Paramount knew they had something special on their hands. Originally, The Truman Show had been scheduled for a November of 97 release. They decided to move it off until summer of 98. This move gave Weir more time and post, but it also meant avoiding a clash with one of Paramount's other big award magnets, Titanic. Paramount gave Titanic clear waters to sail to a huge win for 1997. The big boat nabbed 11 statues, including Best Picture and Best Director for James Cameron. The thought was Truman will clean up at the next year's awards. There was no need to have it stealing trophies this year from Titanic. While this sounded like a great plan, it was not to be, thanks to that bias I mentioned. The next year, Weir would get a nod for Best Director, but The Truman Show was passed over for Best Picture. It was the only film to not get both nominations that year, and it's the only time Weir has ever been nominated for Best Director without the picture also getting a nomination. Jim Carrey was even more slighted than the film. As of 2023, Jim Carrey holds the dubious distinction of being the only actor to ever win the Golden Globe for Best Lead Actor in a Drama in 1998 for Truman and Best Lead Actor in a Comedy or Musical in 1999 for Man on the Moon without receiving an Oscar nomination either year. He may not have gotten the hardware, but Jim did get a nice pop culture attaboy for his work on Truman Show. When Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert reviewed Truman, they gave it two hearty thumbs up. They also apologized to Jim Carrey for saying he would never have a career after his performance in Ace Ventura Pet Detective. I know I have gone on and on about Truman, but amazingly, there's still more out there. Make sure to jump on YouTube and check the deleted scenes. We're going to shut things down for the day, refiners, but before we do, I wanted to remind you about the Severed Patreon page. Join the fun. As we are gearing up for Season 2, the Severed Patreon page is your place for severance talk, behind-the-scenes info, and other goodies you won't get from the regular podcast. Find the Severed page at patreon.com slash severedpod. That's Patreon com slash severed pod. I need to make some money off this podcasting thing, or I might have to go find a real job. Sign up now for only $5 a month. There are more and more rumblings about Season 2. Make sure to keep tabs on the Severed Facebook page, even if you don't become a patron. I'll be reporting on everything I can as soon as I find it. These Origins episodes continue to attract refiners and fellow Severance junkies. Thanks for continuing to listen. I might need a breather after this enormous Truman breakdown, but I will keep you posted as I look into future Origins titles. All right, Refiner, you need to get yourself back home, exit via the elevator, and remember, as always, please stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, Apple TV+, or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.